Acts 12 is what we're talking about today in our lesson. And I thought Anthony did a great job talking about Acts 11. Did he not? How many, how many commandments of the 613 do not apply to us? Do anybody remember that? No. It depends, yeah. I, what I heard somebody say. Yeah, is it written somewhere? How did you know that? Oh, it's on the board still. So, okay, wow. How many, how many of them, how many of them uh, you know, correspond to the temple standing? How many of the 613 commandments of the Torah correspond to the temple worship system? 151, yeah, it's written up there. The bulk of them that don't apply to us are because there's no temple, right? That's an interesting concept. You know that many of the, uh, the early believers in Messiah continued to go to the temple and continue to worship at the temple. It was still their way of going to church, so to speak. And we're going to see that right up until the destruction of the temple. I'm going to prove it to you from the book of Acts. It's going to be interesting. Even Paul himself was participating in that system. Um, I also want to tell Jeremy thank you. Doesn't he do a great job leading liturgy? If, if you think about it, yeah. <laughs> how, how many of you would be completely comfortable uh, to walk up here and stand in front of a group of people? Right? Very few of us would be comfortable doing that. Then how many of you would be comfortable standing in front of a group of people and then singing in front of them with a microphone. That would be horrifying to some of us, would it not? And then how many of you would be comfortable standing here, hearing everyone, hear, letting everyone hear you sing, and letting everyone hear you sing in a different language? Like, think about that. And to do it multiple times, it takes a, a great deal of courage and boldness. So um, it's no small feat. And thank you, Jeremy, for doing that. And, and Anthony does that, and Suzanne. So. And with a beautiful boot on. With a what? A beautiful boot on, yeah. Yeah. So uh, let me let me put this to you guys. If you you are on a plane, let's say, next to someone who grew up in rural Uganda and has never been to the USA, the plane lands in just thirty minutes, and they want a crash course on American culture. What would you tell them? <laughs> I don't know. Bob's Bob's teaching them profanity. I guess I don't know. No, no, you're not. What What would you tell them? What do you guys think? Just Just start start spitting them out at me. What would you tell them? Karen, the Canadian, is going to tell us about American culture. <laughs> what do you got? Be nice to everybody. Very Canadian of you. Yes, yes, yes. She's uh she's she's interweaving a, a piece of her. Of Canadian culture into American culture. Yeah, Jason. Uh, one portion at a restaurant would feed four people. Yeah. One at a restaurant would feed four people. Yeah. In Uganda, they probably know that. They they have big portions in Uganda too. At least for visitors, they do. Yeah, but that's that's true. There's a lot of food in in, in the USA. Yeah. Anything else? Yeah, Michael. There's a lot of different There's a lot of different language cultures. Yeah, which would yeah definitely resonate with a Ugandan as well. But what do you mean like different people people speaking different languages in our country? Different accents, yeah, absolutely, yeah, yeah. Anthony, people don't like physical touch in America as much as other countries. Yeah, I could definitely. Brian, what parts of town to stay away from? Yeah, interesting. Yeah, Marvin, have an open mind and stay away from. Baltimore and in LA and in LA and wow okay all right yeah Xavier I talk about how Americans are typically more individually minded 
Mm, yeah. Americans are more individually minded instead of community minded. Yeah, and I saw a hand behind Xavier, but it went away. Okay, Ariana. Oh, Brent. We're casual. Yeah. Mm, they're kind of laid back. Yeah. And they only speak one language. Yeah, definitely. Anything else you want to share with our Ugandan friend? Yeah. One arm's length all around you at all times. Yeah. Yeah, very good. Yeah, Patrick. <laughs> yes. Patrick never disappoints. Patrick says grape nuts don't come from grapes. I'm sure our Ugandan friend would be really concerned about that as he's, as he's going to Publix and he's looking at a box of cereal. And, yeah. Marvin. Some states open carry on Some states, that would actually be kind of troubling to our Ugandan friend if he saw people carrying firearms. Yeah, they have strict gun control there. Yeah, only police and security have firearms. That might be a little bit alarming. Macy. It's rude to point at people, like I just said, yeah. It's rude to point at people. Yeah, Miss Edith. Our clothes in America do what? They shock the African people. Yeah, like how, how they would maybe view some of the things we wear as very immodest, right? Um, Ugandans are typically very modest people, very proper, modest people. Um, it, it's rare to see a man in Uganda wearing shorts on, for instance. Um, but yeah, anything else? Anything else you want to prepare this person for as he's about to exit terminal? Yeah. Uganda is a Muslim country. Uh, no, it's actually Christian majority, but there are pockets of intense. Let them know that women dress a lot differently. More. Yeah. You're gonna. Yeah, clothing is just gonna be different in general. Absolutely. Absolutely. What about that? What about politics? No one's gonna talk to them about politics. You're about to step out. You're about to step out into a country that would you say we are more or less divided than we were 30 years ago? More divided. More divided. Yeah. You're gonna prepare them for. Hey, just so you know, there's certain things we don't say in the USA. There's certain, you know, colloquialisms that we're not gonna use in the USA that you might use there. Right. Be careful. Uh, stay away from this because in the United States of America. Your speech uh, and what you say is sometimes equated to physical violence, which is interesting. Anything else? What would you uh, what, what would you not tell them, Karen? I would, I would say that there's going to be different than Akuma, so mm -hmm. don't Yeah, yeah, yeah. Jeremy. I guess I'd probably tell them that the United States is I mean, it's so big. Mm -hmm. It's almost like several different countries kind of wrapped into one. So depending on where you go in the country, it's, it's very different. different. Yeah, that's one thing you may prepare. Like that's the best way to prepare. Say the USA is a very large country, and there is no monolithic culture across the board in the USA. Wherever you go, it's going to be different. If you go to Los Angeles, if you go to Portland, Oregon, it's going to be a lot different than if you go to Slocum, Alabama, right? So in 30 minutes, try to prepare someone for the culture of a nation that is very dynamic, let's say, uh, is you're going to fall short, right? He's going to have a very steep learning curve, even with our crash course of culture. And that is very much the case when we get to the first century and second temple era uh, Israel, Judea, we could say. It's very dynamic. There is no monolithic culture. Um, things are changing rapidly. There's political tensions. There's things you just don't say. 
there's a hierarchy of leadership that some would view very illegitimate and then some would view legitimate. And depending on who you hang out with is depending on who you see as being legitimate and who you see as being illegitimate. It's a very tense uh, time in Israel's history. So for me to be up here and to say to you, hey, this is the case in the book of Acts, you know, I only have like 45 minutes to really teach you something. I can't really do it justice. I, can, I, can, and I, I can't, in my own three-pound brain, fit all the context, theological, geographical, and cultural context is going on in the land of Israel, and then be able to definitely be, not, be able to communicate that to you. There are some great works out there um, in this arena, though, and one of them being in the shadow of the temple, which I highly recommend if you're interested in biblical history, and especially New Testament studies, Second Temple uh, Judaisms. Check this book out. It's well worth it, and um, it's in the shadow of the temple. And this is this and another um, book, the backgrounds of early Christianity, have been a very guiding force as we go through, and I study and teach you the book of Acts. But let's review Acts so far and bring everybody up to speed. Just These are some 10 questions I've kind of uh, surveyed through the book of Acts here. Who wrote Acts? Luke did. Yeah, Luke. About how many years of our history? When I say our history, I'm talking about the history of our movement, the way, right? The history of the followers of Yeshua. How many years are we going to cover? Mm. 30. About 30. Yeah, good, Patrick. You get the gold star. About 30 years, yeah. And the way I remember it is it's got about 28 chapters. So it's about 28 years, about 30 years, give or take. It doesn't follow a year per chapter. That would be nice if it did. It jumps around a little bit more, but yeah. True or false, all of Paul's letters were written after Acts was completed. That's false. It's false. Now, they come in our Bible. They, you know, the way they're, they're ordered in our Bible, Paul's letters are going to be back here behind the book of Acts. It doesn't mean he wrote them after all the events of Acts transpired. And Paul's letters are actually... Um, intermittently dispersed amongst the book of Acts. So for instance, um, we're coming up on uh, here in chapter, let's see, I'm going to, and I'm, I'm going to make you aware of this as we get closer, but um, coming up on chapter 20 and chapter 21, really chapter 19, he's writing the, the book of Galatians in Acts chapter 19. Around, the, around that time frame and the events that are happening in 19, Paul is also pinning a letter to the Galatians. So we have eight more chapters, nine more chapters of the book of Acts. So his letters are all going to be interspersed amongst there. And I hope to remember to, to pause and say, oh, by the way, this is about the time when Paul writes a letter to the Corinthians. True or false, Saul's name changed from Saul to Paul upon his conversion. When did it change? Never did change, right? He always had those two names. It's very typical. Number five, name one major question Luke is trying to answer when writing the book of Acts. Hmm. Yes, and I heard, I heard somebody over here, let me take Xavier's real fast, and I heard somebody else say it. The place of the Gentiles in what? In, this, in the way, in the community. In the community, yeah, in the way. Number one, I would say, do Gentiles have a place? Do Gentiles have a place in the age to come, in the coming kingdom, in the Olam Haba, the age to come? Do Gentiles, or do they have to make a a formal conversion into Judaism to have a place in the world to come? That's a big question that Luke is trying to answer with the book of Acts. The second would be, what role do they play or what is expected of the Gentiles when they do come into our movement? What do they have to do or not do? What kind of commandments do they need to keep and to what extent do they need to keep our Torah law? That's a, that's a second big question that we're going to grapple with and Luke is going to try to answer through writing Acts. I heard somebody in the back say something. Was that Mike? Yeah, who, is the who is the Messiah? Yeah, who is the Messiah? And then 
Yeah, what did his followers go out and do? How did they proclaim the message of the king? Good. All right. Number six, what was the purpose of the vision given to Peter in Acts chapter 10? We talked two weeks ago. Yes. To show that God's salvation was for all humanity. It's universal in its scope, no matter the ethnicity. All right? Good. Perfect. He says, like, that anyone who fears him and does what is right, reveres my name. Yeah. Um, number, number seven, who was the first martyr of our faith? Stephen. Stephen. Remember, his name mean, means crown, Stephanos. Um, in what language was Acts originally written? Greek. Yeah, Greek. Number nine, who were the God-fearers? Yeah, they were people that did not make a formal conversion into the Jewish faith, but they kept aspects of the Torah. And can anyone name one we talked about a couple weeks ago? Cornelius, Cornelius was a God-fearer. Yeah, in the Greek, it's phobomenos. It's someone who has a phobia, literally, of God, is where we get the word phobia. They fear God. Um, number 10, who, what, uh, with what sect of first century Judaism did Paul identify? The Pharisees. Yeah, he was a Pharisee through and through, yeah, to the day he died. All right, here's an outline of today's teaching. I'm going to start off by reading Acts 11, 19 uh, through 12, 25, with some commentary in, in there. Then we're going to answer um, this question and look at why sometimes kings hate us. Why many times kings hate us. And then the third point we're going to talk about today is why James and not Peter. Why James and not Peter? If you did your homework and you read Acts 12, maybe you came across that question as well. But before we jump into our reading, let's talk about these guys, the Herodian dynasty. This is one of the most confusing topics in the New Testament, is who are the Herods? Because there's three different Herods that are mentioned. Correction, there's four different Herods that are mentioned in the New Testament. And they go in this order right here. This is just very simplistic. I'm not going to show you anything else about their, the lengths of the reign or anything like that. Herod the Great. Herod the Great. What was he known for? Remember, he had all the babies in Bethlehem slaughtered. All right? He's, he's that far back. Herod the Great. Herod Antipas. What is he known for? John the Baptist executed. Herod Agrippa I. That's the Herod that we're going to see in today's reading in, in Luke chapter 12. He is the grandson of the genocidal murderer that was Herod the Great. Herod the Great is the great architect. He is the one that built Masada. He's the one that built um, and expanded the temple complex. He's the one that built Herodias, the big fortress in the middle of the mountain. He was the great paranoid architect, okay? All of these guys had one thing in common. They were what we call vassal kings. Vassal king is a king that has a emperor over them. So they're, they're like a king that has a short leash, in other words, okay? The Romans would go into a region and they would pick someone like someone maybe that had already had prestige or power or money, and they would say, okay, now you're in charge here. Keep everybody in order. Keep, keep law and order, and we will let you live in luxury. That's a vassal king, okay? Sometimes, you know, we have done that in our history. In the United States of America, maybe you go into, like, Afghanistan, and you say, okay, which tribe here is warring which, which tribe, and which one has the most power, and you've got to assess, okay, okay, you're going to be in charge. The British would do this. The French would do this. Okay, here's all the guns and here's all the money. You keep law and order. and Whatever, you know, hear no evil, see no evil, you're in charge. If stuff gets really wild, then we'll come in and we'll intervene. That's kind of the Roman, um, I guess, relationship with the Herodian, Herodian dynasty. The, the, uh, the Herods were 
uh, uh, this weird intertwined product of inbreeding. Um, they were half Samaritan, half Idumean, um, who in ancient times converted to Judaism. So they were nominally accepted by mainstream Judaism. But if you look at this family tree here, we could almost call it a family wreath. Herod the Great, we talked about he's the great architect and the genocidal guy. Come down here, we see, um, I'm looking for Herod Antipas. There he is, Herod Antipas. And then we go to Herod Agrippa, and then we got Agrippa too. But look at this. Like, for instance, Herodias marries Herod Philip I, then married Herod Antipas. So she marries her, what did that be, uncle? And then she marries her other uncle? Am I, am I saying that right? There's a lot, if you look at this for any given amount of time, what do you notice about this? There's a lot of weird inbreeding going on. There's a lot of power and struggle for power, and there's just, just a lot of sin and corruption going on that is in the face of the Torah. They should not be doing those kinds of things and not be having those kinds of relationships. This is the Herodian dynasty, and these are the vassal kings that are ruling the land of Judea at the time. Now, we're right here at Herod Agrippa I. He's reigning from 41 to 44. Like I said, he's in Acts chapter 12. And Herod Agrippa I is arguably the most cunning of all the Herods. He's the one that's going to accumulate, and um, he successfully does something that his grandfather was unable to do. He consolidates more territory in the land of Judea, Judea than his grandfather, Herod the Great. He's very manipulative, he's very cunning, but also very paranoid. But these are just some facts about Herod Agrippa I, the Agrippa that we're going to see in today's reading. Like I said, he, um, his name, his very name, means Song of the Hero. Herod, which is where we get the word hero from. And you combine two Greek words together, it means Song of the Hero, which is Herod. And then Agrippa, it's two Greek words combined together, Agrios and Hippos, which means wild horse. Okay? So his name meant the song of the hero who was like a wild horse. That gives you an idea of what kind of complex this man had. And in our reading today, when we get to Acts chapter 12, we're going to see this man is 54 years old. Okay? And he is, uh, he's ruling. This is a map during um, the times of like King Solomon. Well, no, actually post-King Solomon, because we have two separate kingdoms here of Israel. We have Kingdom of Israel, and we have Kingdom of Judah down here. But these are the surrounding, uh, we could say, city-states around the land of Israel here. But this is the kingdom of, of Edom, and this is where the uh, Edomians come from. They're Edomites, mixed with Samaritans, and then you get, you get the lineage of the Herodian dynasty, okay? So if you're a dyed-in-the-wool, I guess we could say purebred, Galilean, Torah-faithful Jew, how would you look at the Herodian dynasty? Corrupt, illegitimate, yeah, like racially impure, right? They should not be our king. Yeah, you would look at them that way and you would say, oh, that is not my king. So here is a, uh, this is too small, but this is showing Idumea down here as it became, and then Israel here. So Herod Agrippa I, his goal is to consolidate more power under his reign. And we're going to see how he does that in one of these situations here. He's actually going to use one of the members of the way to try to do that. 
Josephus talks about our friend Herod the Agrippa, and this is external historical evidence. It's extra biblical evidence talking about Herod Agrippa. And let's see if it sounds familiar to you. He says from the Antiquities, Now when Agrippa had reigned three years over all Judea, he came to the city of Caesarea, which was formerly called Strato's Tower. And there he exhibited spectacles in honor of Caesar, for, for whose well-being he'd been informed that a certain festival was being celebrated. At this festival, a great number were gathered together of the principal uh, persons of dignity of his province. On the second day of the spectacle, he put on a garment made wholly of silver, of a truly wonderful texture, and came into the theater early in the morning. There, the silver of his garment, being illuminated by the fresh reflection of the sun's rays, it shone out in a wonderful way, and was so resplendent as to spread all over all those who looked intently upon him. Presently, his flatterers cried out, one, one from one place and one from another, though not for his good, that he was like a god. And they added, Be thou merciful to us, for although we have hitherto reverenced thee only as a man, yet shall we henceforth uh, own thee as superior to mortal nature. Upon this the king neither rebuked them, nor, henceforth, uh, nor rejected their impious flattery, but he shortly afterward took up and saw an owl sitting on a certain rope above his head, and immediately understood that this bird was a messenger of ill tidings, just as it had once been the messenger of good tidings to him. He fell into the deepest sorrow. A severe pain rose in his belly, striking with the most violent intensity. He therefore looked upon his friends and said, I, whom you call a god, am commanded presently to depart this life. While providence thus reproves the lying words you just now said to me, and I, who was by you called immortal, am immediately being hurried away to my death. But I am bound to accept what providence allots, as it pleases God. For we have by no means lived ill, but in a splendid and happy manner. When he had said this, his pain became violent. Accordingly, he was carried into the palace, and the rumor went abroad everywhere that he would certainly die. The multitude sat in sackcloth, men, women, and children, after the law of their country, and besought God for the king's recovery. All places were so full of mourning and lamentation. Now the king rested in a high chamber, and as he saw them below lying prostrate on the ground, he could not keep himself from weeping. And when he had been quite worn out by the pain in his belly for five days, he departed this life, being in the fifty-fourth year of his age, and in the seventh year of his reign. He ruled four years under Caius Caesar, Three of them were over Philip's tetrarchy only, and the fourth of that uh, Herod was added to it, and he reigned besides those three years under Claudius Caesar. So what's interesting is uh, Josephus, who is an uh, extra-biblical historian, is going to paint this picture of Herod's death here. But let's jump into Acts chapter 11 and start in verse 19. It's where we left off last week. If you have a Bible, turn there. Follow along. It says in Acts eleven nineteen, for Now those who had been scattered because of the persecution which had arisen over Stephen, went as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch. They spoke God's word, but only to Jews. However, some of these, men from Cyprus and Cyrene, when they arrived at Antioch, began speaking to the Greeks also, proclaiming the good news of the Lord Yeshua. The hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number of people trusted in terms of the Lord. News of this reached the ears of the and the Greek there is ekklesia. If you have anything other than ekklesia, you might cross it out. My Bible says messianic community. I don't like that. It's just not what it says. It says ekklesia. And we'll get into later what an ekklesia is. 
um, but the ecclesia in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnaba to Antioch. On arriving and seeing for himself the grace of God at work, he was glad, and he encouraged them all to remain true to the Lord with their whole hearts, for he was a good man. He was full of the Holy Spirit and trust. Then Barnaba, remember Barnaba means the, uh, the encourager. He went off to Tarsus to look for Saul. Remember, Saul is in Tarsus hiding for his life, right? And when he found Saul, he brought him to Antioch. They met with the congregation there for a whole year and taught a sizable crowd. And it was also in Antioch that the disciples, for the first time, were called Christianos, Christians. And during this time, some prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. Now, wait a second. If they're going from Jerusalem north to Antioch, why does it say they're going down to Antioch? Yeah, you got it. Good. Okay, so if you're going away from Jerusalem, the thought process is you're going down. And Luke is preserving that for us as well. What verse is that on? Okay, they're going down from Jerusalem to Antioch, verse 28. And one of them named Agav stood up and through the Spirit predicted that there was going to be a severe famine throughout the Roman Empire. It took place while Claudius was empire, emperor. Remember, that's what Josephus said, that Herod Agrippa ruled under Claudius Caesar. So the, the disciples decided to provide relief to the brothers living in Yehuda, according, each according to his means. And they did it, sending their contribution to the elders in the care of Barnaba and Saul. So in other words, what they're doing is they're, they're, sending a very, they're doing a very biblical thing. They're taking money, they're collecting money, and they're sending it to people, but they're not just sending it to be freely distributed, like, here, everybody take some money. What they're doing is sending it to the leadership of the way, of our movement, of the Christians. Then the, they're, they're trusting that they will then distribute it based on their wisdom and their understanding of the situation. Okay, chapter 12. This is the year 44, by the way, 44 or 45. It was around this time that King Herod, now you know all about King Herod Agrippa I, um, who, think about this, by the way, is a kind of a type, a typology of someone we'll see in Revelation that we call the Antichrist. Okay, think of him that way as well. He began arresting and persecuting certain members of the ecclesia. And he had James, Yochanan's, John's brother, put to death by the sword. Let's pause here for a second and say that this is not a biblical means of executing someone, is it? There's nowhere in the Torah that says you should put to death someone with a sword. Right? So what, what is going on here is Herod is probably handing James over to the Roman authorities and having James killed in a Roman way. Probably it might be by beheading, more than likely. But well, I want to pause here and talk about this James character. Because there's two James, and it gets a bit confusing. There's James, the brother of Yeshua. Then there's James, the brother of John. Two different James. And I want to go to this slide here. James' is James. James's name is not James in the Bible. Okay, um, His name in Greek right here is Jacobus. Jacobus. Okay? Jacobus. But he's the brother to Yochanan. He's a fisherman by trade, if you remember. Remember, uh, James and John were called together. They were, called, they were out fishing, right? He's one of the sons of uh, Zavdai. He's nicknamed by Yeshua. Uh, James and John are nicknamed by Yeshua as the Ben Regesh, the sons of thunder, right? Maybe because of their, their hot temper, their passion, their zeal. Remember, they're the guys that said, do you want us to call down fire on the village in, in Samaria? Right? Yeshua is like, man, you guys are like, like sons of thunder. Right? Also told they would be fishers of men, and he was one of Yeshua's closest three disciples. 
But why James and not Yaakov? Why in your Bible do you see James? Some of you, if you have a complete Jewish Bible or something like that, you have Yaakov. But how do they go from Yaakov to James? And even the brother of Jesus is named James, and his, his name would have been a very Jewish or Hebrew name, Yaakov, named after one of the patriarchs, remember? What happened is um, when, uh, when, when John Wycliffe translated the Bible in the 1300s, he translated it directly from the Latin Vulgate, which was a criminal activity under the, the Roman Catholic Church at the time. Um, but he translated it from the Latin Vulgate. And because he did that, in Latin, it looks a lot like, uh, it has more of an M sound to it here. And it, and it kind of changes just a bit to like um, uh, Eumis or something like that, if I'm not botching it. But in Latin, you can kind of see the bridge there. There's a misnomer that says that King James, because he commissioned the King James Bible to be translated, that he paid to have his name in, in the Bible. That's not true. John Wycliffe, 300 years prior to the King James Bible, had, he, he in Middle English, put, changed Yaakov or Ichabus to James. Okay? So make sure you get that straight. But his name would have been Yaakov. Yaakov. Very good Hebrew name. Yeah. Jacob, yes. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and unfortunately, Wycliffe did translate uh, Yaakov in the Hebrew Bible as Jacob. But for some reason, when he gets to Ichabus, probably because of the Greek and Latin influence later in the, in the first century, he's going to translate it as James in his Wycliffe translation. Now, John Wycliffe, many of you know, um, he was obviously labeled a heretic by the Roman Catholic Church because he translated the Bible into English, God forbid, right? He translated the Bible in English, and then he dies uh, much later of natural causes in the early 1400s, if I'm not mistaken. Well, the, the Roman Catholic Church is like, no, that's not enough. They actually dig his bones up, and they burn his bones. And then they, they pulverize them to a powder and then throw them in a river, and then burn all of his works, all of his translation works. But by then, the, the, the cat was out of the bag, and uh, Wycliffe is often seen as one of the early um, kind of... Um, fathers of what would become the Protestant Reformation because, you know, eventually the Bible gets into the hands of the layman from there and they begin to read, oh, wait a second, we don't have to ask priests or pay for these indulgences to priests according to the Bible. Um, so they kind of see around that deception. But All right, let's continue here. Where, what verse did I leave off? When Herod saw how much this pleased the Judeans, remember Herod is a, a shrewd politician, isn't he? He saw how much it pleased Judeans. He went on to arrest Peter, or Kepha, as well. It was during the days of unleavened bread. So when Herod seized him, he threw him in prison, handing him over to be guarded by four guards, or four squads of four soldiers each, with the intention of bringing him to public trial after Passover is over. So Kepha was being held under watch in prison, but intense prayer was being made to God on his behalf by the ecclesia, by the church, or by the Messianic community, by the, by the called-out assembly. Verse 6, The night before Herod was going to bring him to trial, Kepha was sleeping between two soldiers. He was bound with two chains, and guards were at the door, keeping watch over the prison. Suddenly, an angelos kyrios, which is a, an angel of the Lord, stood there, and a light shone into the cell. He tapped Kepha's side and woke him. He said, hurry, get up. Now, let's pause. What time of year is this on the Jewish calendar? It's Passover. Do you hear the Passover language? He says, hurry, get up. And the chains fell off of his hands. Sound familiar? Sounds like the Passover, doesn't it? And the angel said to him, put on your clothes and your sandals on your feet. Wait, what does that sound like? 
Sounds like Passover, right? Remember, you're supposed to eat Passover, the first Passover, with your, your cloak on, your sandals on your feet. And he says, throw on your robe. And he said, follow me. Sounds just like Passover. You look at Exodus chapter 12 and Exodus chapter 23. Remember, the angel would go before. He says, I will send my angel before you. Follow my angel. So what Peter is experiencing here on the anniversary of the greatest Passover, you know, 3,500 years prior, 1,500 years prior, sorry, he's experienced this little microcosm of the Passover experience where he's bound in prison by a wicked king, and then the, the angels come in, they let him go, he's passed over, so to speak. The angel, you know, the deliverer comes, and he throws his clothes on, follow me, and he gets out. Going out, Peter followed him, but did not realize that what was happening uh, through the angel was real. He thought he was seeing a horama. Remember, that's like a vision. Having passed a first guard and a second, they arrived at the iron gate leading to the city. This opened to them by itself, and they made their exit. They went down the length of one street, and suddenly the angel left him. Then Kepha came to himself and said, Now I know for sure that the Lord sent his angel to rescue me from Herod's power and from everything the Judean people were hoping for. Realizing that what had happened, when he went to the house of Miriam, the mother of Yochanan, who was also called Mark, right, wrote the Gospel of Mark, where many people had gathered to pray, he knocked outside the door, and a servant named Rhoda came to answer. She recognized Kepha's voice and was happy. So she ran back in uh, without even opening the door and announced that Kepha was standing outside. You're out of your mind, they said to her, but she insisted it was true. They said, it's just his angel. Meanwhile, Kepha kept knocking, and when they opened the door and saw him, they were amazed. Motioning to them with his hand to be quiet, he told them how the Lord had brought him out of prison and said, Tell all this to Yaakov, James, and the brother. Now, this is a different James. This is the brother of Jesus, James. Then he left and went elsewhere. Verse 18, When daylight came, there was no small commotion among the soldiers over what had become of Kepha. Just like it was in Egypt, right? No small commotion. Herod had a thorough search made for him, but they failed to find him. So he cross-examined the guards and, and put them to death. Then Herod went down to, there's that same language, he went down from Judah to Caesarea, even though that would be northwest, and he spent some time there. Now, when Herod was very angry with the people of Sor and Sidon, so they joined together and sought an audience with Herod. Remember, he's, such a, he's a politician, he's a shrewd, he's trying to consolidate his power. After securing the support from Blastus, the king's chief personal servant, they asked for peace of Herod because they depended on the king's land for their food supply. Never get dependent on a wicked king. That's, who. never do it. But kings love it when you get dependent on them. Wicked kings love that. So he said, verse 21, a day was set. And Herod, in his royal robe, sat on the throne and made a speech to them. And the mob cried out, This is like the voice of God, not man. Uh-oh. And at once, because Herod did not give glory to God, an angel of the Lord struck him down, and he was eaten away by worms and died. And these are the same words. These are like scholics that are mentioned in Mark chapter 9, where Yeshua says that the, the worm never dies, the fire's never quenched, and the scholics never die. Those are the same worms. And it says in verse 24, but let's pause here because Herod meets his end just like Pharaoh did, didn't he? He meets his end just like his kingdom is ruined. And he is, like I said, a typology of the Antichrist. And if you look at Revelation 20, you'll see how the Antichrist's reign ends as well. 
Verse 24, but the Logos, the word of the Lord, went on growing and being multiplied. Barnaba and Saul, having completed their errand, returned from Jerusalem, bringing with them Yochanan, John, surnamed Mark. So Herod here is given this interesting choice. As the movement of the way continues to grow, here is his choice. I can A, consolidate power and appease the people at the expense of the Christians and reject the message altogether. Or, what would it look like if Herod accepted the message? What would it look like if he gave up his power and he unified the people under the true king? Be interesting, wouldn't it? See, what's wrong with having a bunch of Christians in your kingdom? If they're true Yeshua followers, would that be a blessing or a curse to your kingdom? It depends. <laughs> it depends how self-centered and prideful you are as a human being, isn't it? And Herod is given this choice just like Adam is given a choice in the garden. Do you take the fruit by force? Or do you surrender to God's sovereignty and say, hey, if you want me to stay on this throne, I'll stay here. But if you want to take me off this throne, I'll do whatever. You're the true king. But we have this... Um, this, this overarching question here that maybe plagued you as it did me. Why is James killed, but not Peter? Seems unfair, doesn't it? Do you guys have any theories on that? And we might think like, man, that's right. Yeah, James did have to die. And Peter, not of his own right, gets out of prison. Right? He's like, he's gone. He's free. He walks. Why didn't James get the same miracle? We could say, oh, maybe because the, the ecclesia, the, the community was praying fervently for Peter. I, I think they probably were for James as well. That's maybe a theory. Maybe they prayed for him, but not for James. I don't know. Maybe, maybe God had something for Peter to do later, perhaps. But think about this. Like, James and John are brothers. They're fishermen. How many of you have a brother in the room? How many of you have gone fishing with that brother, right? And you, I look at my sons, and we were talking about my sons last night. Like We were going through some old photos last night after dinner of our family. And looking at Eli and Noah, they spent 98% of their waking hours together, up, I mean, even, even to today. They are, I mean, as much as they probably don't want me to admit it, they are each other's best friends. But I could not imagine what would happen to either of them if something tragic happened. What that would do to them. I mean, all the, think of the fishing trips and the camping trips and the kayaking trips. And to lose one of their brothers would feel like a piece of them is just gone. And, I, and I, you got to remember, if you guys are sitting, if you're members of the first century sect known as the way, and these guys are your leaders, these guys walked with the master, these guys there, they witnessed all of this. They are your teachers, they are your leaders, they are your elders. James gets arrested, dead. Man, that would be a blow to, one, to all of us, wouldn't it? If one of the leaders of DMF, that happened to us, Think about that. What do we go on? You know, and then Peter gets arrested. Oh, let's pray, let's pray, let's pray. Guys, we can't let this happen to Peter. And meanwhile, John is like, my brother, 
died at the, at the hand of an evil king. He was just trying to consolidate more power for himself. He did not deserve that, right? The anger that John might feel over that. And then Peter, middle of the night, walks out of prison. Does that seem a little more unfair to you, perhaps? Now, I have a pretty good reason as to why Peter walked and James did not. But my reason is not going to come up until Acts chapter 15. You might be thinking, well, that's, I can't. Well, I want you to experience in a small, small way what the early followers of the way experienced emotionally. And we're probably not going to get, I mean, we're probably three to five more years till we get a good answer on why James died, but Peter didn't. And you guys have to wait maybe all of three weeks. But I have a pretty good reason as to why James was killed, but Peter was spared. But there's a lesson in that, right? And these are some lessons I extracted from Acts chapter 12. Sometimes the best solution to a prideful tyrant is to peacefully, civilly disobey if you have to, and then let them run their course and have to confront a holy and living God. Hmm. If you look at history, if you're a student of history, you look at violent revolutions in countries. The fact that the United States of America and the colonies successfully revolted from the British Empire, and we have what we have today, is, I believe firmly, a miracle. You look at the uh, Arab Spring and the Egyptian Revolution that happened in 2011. Remember President Mubarak gets overthrown. And it, they end up, the French Revolution, I mean, I could go through the list. Historically speaking, revolutions, especially violent revolutions, don't end well for the people who are trying to overthrow those in power. It's always like some extreme group comes in and ruins it and actually makes it far worse and they want their Mubarak back, right? The fact that it worked out for us is the exception to that rule. And I would say that the men who set forth to write some of the founding documents of our nation, they did so with great trepidation and fear of God and thinking those things, brilliant men. But violence and revolution was the last, last, last resort for the revolutionaries of the 13 colonies. And it should be for us. But civil disobedience is is an obligation that we have when it comes to a tyrant who is getting us to disobey the written word of God. Let, it, let them run their course, pray for them, and let them meet a living and holy God. I also learned that followers of Yeshua, we present this weird challenge to the authority of tyrants and kings. Why? Because we have a higher king, right? Herod wanted these guys gone. Ultimately, yeah, he could use them as political pawns, but ultimately, these members of the way, they present a problem to my authority. Just like Nero or Emperor Hadrian of the Roman Empire, these Christians here in Rome, they present a problem to me because they don't think that I'm the be-all and end-all. Yeah, they pray for me, they respect me, and they, they might follow my orders as long as they don't disobey the king of kings' orders. That is just enough to irritate them. That's enough, I guess we could say, like thorn in their side to make them hate us. A hallmark of a Yeshua follower should not be seeking recognition over our, of our accomplishments or skills, 
but rather a radical and ready acknowledgement of our shortcomings. We should take a play, uh, I should say a page out of the playbook of Moses when confronted. And what did he do when confronted in his authority? Fall on his face. You're right. Gabe Rutledge does not deserve to be in the position that Gabe Rutledge is in. Absolutely right. I am a broken, fallen, sinful man. It is the grace of God that has got me here and is holding me together. Doesn't mean I don't try, but man, I am trapped in flesh. I, I readily, readily acknowledge my shortcomings. And that is the best remedy to pride, but it's the best remedy to, to a, a tyrant. It's the best remedy and, and preventative measure from God's judgment on you. Sometimes things seem unfair is another lesson I learned. We may in time, like talking about James and Peter, we may in time know the reason behind it, the higher purpose behind that thing that seems unfair. For some people, it might be the, the, the dissolving of a marriage, dissolving of a parent's marriage, the loss of a loved one or a child, or whatever the case may be. There's a higher purpose there. It's not meaningless. We may learn the meaning in time. We may not. But still, God is sovereign. Right? And let me finish with this question here. What if James, the guy who, you know, died at the hands of Agrippa I, this very uh, unheroic death, we could say, right? He didn't have this big speech that's recorded anywhere in history like Stephen did. He wasn't, he wasn't on public display, and he didn't have these people following. And, oh, man, look at James. He's dying right now. He's dying for the faith. It was very anticlimactic life, wasn't it? What if he just stayed a fisherman? What if he'd been like, ah, you know, uh, Yeshua, I don't really know you that well. You know, this is, I like doing this. It gives me fulfillment. Or, you know, like I, I don't know what to, how to transfer my 401k over to, you know, what you got going on here. What if he's just like, no, thank you. It would have been different for him, wouldn't it have been? He would have just died this quiet, natural death, surrounded by his family, whatever. But think about the life that he saw and the life that he lived. The miracles and the exorcisms and the healings that he got to witness in his life. Yet his time was cut short. And there's a saying that goes, brave men make history. And it's the cautious ones that write it. And I think James was one of these brave men that made history. I don't know if Luke was one of the cautious ones, but I want to implore you men in the room, be brave, be courageous, and you might find yourself making history, but be brave and courageous for the kingdom. With that, we're going to go to Q&A. As you're thinking up your question, your pressing question, here's your homework assignment for the week. I want you to read Acts chapter 13, and determine for me, how many biblical references do you think Paul is making in this chapter alone? So Paul is coming onto the scene. Paul is starting his public ministry in Acts chapter 13, and it's exciting. Paul is, he's fired up, you're going to see in Acts chapter 13. But Paul is not just making up his own spiel. Paul is quoting all over the Hebrew Bible, all over what we would call the Tanakh. 
And I want you to try to count how many references Paul is going to make from the Tanakh, from the Hebrew Bible, just in Acts chapter 13. And let's meet back next week and see what you got. So what kind of questions or responses or comments do you guys have about Acts chapter 12? Anything? Yeah, Karen. His angelos. Yeah. Yeah, I, from what I understand, the, the Greek angelos is uh, kind of more generic. And it's talking about his, it's talking about his spirit. Um, it's not talking about that he has his angel that looks like him or anything like that, like his avatar in the spiritual realm. It's not like that. It's just, I think what they're saying is basically, oh, we thought it was like a non-physical manifestation of him, basically that his spirit, his ghost, I guess, maybe what you could say. Yeah. <laughs> well, and you have to remember too, like in, in the Jewish world, uh, it's thought that the soul hangs around the body for about four days before it goes to eternity, to, to Abraham's bosom or whatever. Um, so you can look at the story of Lazarus and his resurrection, for instance. But yeah, depending on what what sect of Judaism you belong to or ascribe to, yeah, your soul is going to linger around the body, the physical body, for a time. So for them, they're probably thinking that. Yeah, I mean, there's a certain amount of time where there might be uh, like a, yeah, what would it call, be called? A, um, apparition. Thank you. Yeah, yeah, Greg. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, I think they assumed he was he was goners. Yeah. Yeah. That's what I think. Yeah. Yeah, good question. Yeah, Jason. Well, I guess the whole scheme is kind of what you were saying is in the context of civil disobedience. But that doesn't say we ask the question, Yeah, yeah. There's a, there's a, there's a lot. That's a very big question, um, and you know, there's. I think one of our founders is cited saying that the tree of liberty is watered by the blood of tyrants, and I would say that that might be true, uh, but also I would say that a lot of bad um, new tyrants come to power when you kill the first one. Um, you're asking basically when do we know when to take up arms? And I would say uh, to take a page out of the, the playbook of the founders and say that you know by the time they write some of the founding the Declaration of Independence, they have exhausted all other options. And they're saying like, we don't wanna do this. We don't wanna go here. You know, this is a last resort, you know, and some of the language in there is like, we tried everything at our disposal and we are now declaring ourselves independent of, of you as an empire. Um, but yeah, Jason, I, I don't know, but I am terrified of, um, you know, if, if let's say that there were a, a attempted revolution in the United States of America, 
and people, there was a large contingent of people that felt like there was too much corruption in the government of the United States of America, and there was a attempted violent insurrection, I would be, I would be, um, I would be terrified of the outcome of that. Um, number one, because I don't think it would work out well for the insurrectionists. Um, and then that, I think, would create a blank check for the tyrant or whatever entities in power to say, okay, you guys want to play those games? I, we, can, we can amp it up then. Um, even if the insurrection is successful in people groups in a nation, then you got to figure out, okay, now who's in charge? <laughs> and that question always ends up being, well, who has the biggest guns and the most money? And that's not a good place to go to, <laughs> unfortunately. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Like you're talking about in the Ukraine, for instance. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's tough. Yeah. And if you didn't engage yourself, you know, that's kind of like, I don't know, it's a thoughtful thing. That's something that I think we as individuals and families have to practice discernment and prayerfully decide how to move forward in those kinds of situations. Um, I'm not trying to like be a cop out on the answer, but no. these these situations are very uh, complex. But, uh, you know, I heard, I said, saw something the other day. It said, um, that sa it said, save lives, stay home should be a foreign policy, not a domestic one. <laughs> That's so true. Um, but yeah, if only we could, if only we could practice that, right? Any other questions? Yeah, Michael. They were praying for him to be released, then why would they think he's dead? Maybe they just thought their prayers weren't effective. Maybe they just lost hope. They're like, oh, I guess it's his ghost. They just saw James out, yeah. Yeah, Carol. Had just happened to James. Then Paul was put in prison. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Um, what was your first point? Oh, the the founders, right, is what you talked about. Yeah, and if you look at, I mean, even as great as our nation is, as some of our founding documents are, um, they're not perfect, right? Uh, I don't think the founders ever thought about corporate media outlets <laughs> and huge amounts of money flowing into political parties to lobby for certain laws to be passed. Um, they don't think they thought about people like, ambulance chasers and tout law and all that kind of stuff. They, I think if they thought about that, they would have written that into their founding documents to prevent that from happening. But that will absolutely be the demise of our nation if there, was, if there is going to be one. Tanya.
Yeah, that's a really good. You just walked through it, huh? Something very similar. Wow. You know, Marvin. You know, one thing says the insurrection, one thing you got to worry about is like enemies. Mm -hmm. Yeah, foreign enemies. Yeah, I might seize on that as well. Yeah. Yeah, Chris. I just, uh, you said that Paul's speech uh, and the promises. I saw a parallel to how uh, China, China and uh, mm -hmm. American corporations, mm -hmm. you know, we are, we're uh, combined into the Paul's promises. Yeah, yeah, and and you know, you look. There's a lot of parallels that historians will draw between the fall of Rome and what's happening in the United States of America right now as well. Uh, lots and lots of parallels. So. And Rome had a much longer <laughs> run of it, too. Um, any other questions or comments? Very good feedback. All right. Well, we're going to take the, the kiddush here and um, get ready to break and eat, eat food. Can I close in prayer? I didn't do that. I'm sorry. I forgot. Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for this opportunity to, sh to study your word and to study the history of our movement. May everything we be, uh, that we discuss today, may it um, edify our walk and encourage us in, in our faith. And may we trust you when we go through times of testing and trial, not knowing the full result of that, not knowing the outcome or the purpose behind it. May we just trust your sovereignty and surrender over to you. So Father, we already deserve death. We already deserve capital punishment for the sins that we have committed. So our hands are entrusted to you. Our lives are entrusted into your hands, I should say. Help us to hold loosely our own lives and to be bold and bright ambassadors in a dark world. I pray this in Yeshua's name. Amen.